Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Desert locusts are eating their way through East Africa on a scale not seen in decades. These are migratory pests that, under the right conditions, can reproduce quickly and form massive swarms. These swarms travel from field to field eating and reproducing, and this sometimes includes crops meant for human consumption or grasslands on which herders graze their livestock. It is estimated that a swarm of locusts the size of one square kilometer can eat as much food in a day as 35,000 people. Right now, Ethiopia and Somalia are experiencing their worst locust situation in 25 years. For parts of Kenya, the swarms are larger than at any time in the last 70 years. Needless to say, this is a region of the world already vulnerable to food shortages, be it from drought or conflict. Now, these massive swarms are threatening to plunge this region deeper into crisis. On the line with me to help explain the desert locust situation is Keith Cressman of the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO. He's been studying desert locusts for decades. In fact, he is the Senior Desert Locust Forecasting Officer at the UNFAO. In this conversation, he explains why we are seeing this historic upsurge in desert locusts in East Africa, their impact on lives and livelihoods of the people in this region, and what can be done to control the swarms and mitigate their impact. Obviously, this desert locust crisis in East Africa comes in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And as a result, I think this particular crisis is not getting the attention it deserves. So I was glad to have this conversation. So I know I've mentioned this uh, in the last couple of episodes, but I want to emphasize that if if you want to reach out to me, please do. Uh, You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. You know, I know these are challenging times for many people. It is, you know, for me, balancing homeschooling and working from home. Uh, But I I know in a lot of cities, particularly here in the United States, the situation uh, is seems poised to become very dire uh, over the next couple weeks. If you want to reach out, if you want to chat, just, you know, feel free to email me. I I read all those emails. I respond to all those emails. uh, And I'd love to hear from you. Also, I know that you know many people who listen to the show are in academia, are students or professors, or you know otherwise interested in global issues more broadly. Uh, I've put together a resource guide of podcast episodes that might help you as you move to online learning, or if you're not with an academic institution, you just might find interesting nonetheless. Just email me and I'd be glad to send it to you. It's basically a Google Doc in which I categorize a number of my episodes based on topics that you would often encounter in academic courses on international relations and related fields. You might find it useful. I've I've heard from several professors and students who have found it very useful. I'd be glad to share it with you. 
And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to click on the ad to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. You can also reach out to me directly, and I'd be glad to put you in touch with the good folks at Northwestern. All right, now here is my conversation with Keith Cressman, the Senior Desert Locust Forecasting Officer at the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So being a desert locust forecaster is a full-time position at the FAO? Uh, it is, yes. Because it's, a, it's I mean, we're, we're constantly um, monitoring the, the environmental conditions and the locust situation 24-7, 365 um, throughout the world. So, so from West Africa to, to India. And I think over the course of this conversation, we'll learn why it is that the FAO and the international community more broadly is is so sort of deeply concerned and interested in learning more about desert locusts. Uh, before we get there, though, can you just explain what is a desert locust? All right, a desert locust um, is basically um, a souped-up grasshopper. It's like a grasshopper on steroids. Um, it's different than a grasshopper. I mean, it looks um, exactly like a grasshopper, and many people confuse the two. Um, but the difference is that that desert locusts have this um, ability to change their behavior um, in response to environmental conditions. And, and so what that means is that um, under optimal conditions, uh, they can reproduce very quickly, and uh, they change from, from being a solitarious um, uh, insect in the middle of the desert to to one that's part of a gang, part of a group. Um, and for many years, up until um, the late 1920s, um, people thought that these were two completely different insects. But it's just one insect um, that does this kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde trick. Um, and it, it, it's not only changing the behavior, but they change their appearance as well. So sometimes a desert locust could be fine just being, you know, on its own, uh, but other times it forms parts of, of packs or probably what you would call swarms. Yeah, that's right. I mean, normally desert locusts are, are, are on their own. They're what we call solitarious. Um, so they're just out there in the desert. Um, they're trying to survive, uh, waiting for the next rains uh, so that they can finish their, their, their maturation and then, and then lay eggs, because obviously that's their objective in life is, is simply just to reproduce. Um, so when they're solitarious, um, of course, they, they, their color blends in with, um, with the desert surroundings. So the adults are kind of a dusty, kind of grayish brown, so it matches the sands. Um, the hoppers, these are the wingless um, nymphs, the larval stage, um, you know, that aren't adults yet. It's like, you know, kids for us. 
Um, they're green color, so they match the vegetation. They blend in with the vegetation. Um, and then uh, when they um, increase in numbers because of really good you know, rainfall and environmental conditions, um, and they start to, to change your behavior, and uh, they become more and more what we call gregarious. So they, part, they first kind of start to make small groups and concentrate in those, and then they become larger and denser, and then they can form these magnificent swarms of adults or these what we call hopper bands, you know, bands of these uh, wingless nymphs. Um, so they're changing their behavior, and again, they're changing their color. So instead of being um, a green solitarious hopper or, or brown and a solitarious adult, um, the hoppers be- become um, a bright yellow-black, kind of black-spotted um, thing. And, and the immature adults, the ones that aren't sexually um, uh, mature yet, they're a bright pink color. And then when they become sexually mature and ready to reproduce, they're a bright yellow color. So, so you can see that you know the the differences of the colors and why people were you know confused for 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 hundreds and hundreds of years until um, you know they, they sorted this out. But also, and where? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. But also, you know, you have to understand like why? Why is this? You know, why are they changing colors like this? And and this is one of the you know um, gazillion kind of um, survival mechanisms um, that has evolved over time with the desert locusts because you know they're one of the oldest creatures on the planet kind of like cockroaches and you know other really wonderful things um, well you know it's almost passover I've, I've read about them for years exactly and so the reason being is of course when they're alone um as individuals they, they're targets for predators like birds and reptiles and and, and small ruminants and, and and these things so they need to blend into the environment so it's like a camouflage thing um but when they're in a group of course, as a as a hopper band or as a desert locust swarm, uh, of course they are too. They're targets, aren't they? And there's lots of them. So you know that the predators are, would think it's kind of a delight. So the locusts kind of paint themselves in bright colors, and in nature, in bright colors, especially kind of yellows and pinks and these things, are a sign of danger to other predators, as other um, other kind of animals that would like to eat them. So it's like. Whoa, they see this bright color and they say, hey, no, 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 no. This is going to be like poisonous. It's going to give me a stomachache. I'm not going to eat it. Mm. So where where are desert locusts located around the world? Well, just, just as their title indicates, they're in the deserts. And so they're an old world species, which means that they um, are in Africa, in the deserts of Africa, the Near East, and, and Southwest Asia. So that's basically the Sahara Desert, which stretches from, from West Africa, from Senegal and Morocco, all the way across to, to Egypt and Sudan and to the Red Sea. Um, and then they're in the, in the deserts of the Arabian Peninsula, um, the Persian Gulf, and, and all the way to, to the deserts on both sides of the India-Pakistan border. Um, they're not in, in America or, or uh, in the Americas because um, they haven't managed, they've managed to cross the Atlantic Ocean, but they've never become established in, in, in the Americas. Uh, they're not further north in, in Asia and in, in Russia um, because uh, they can't get over the Himalayan mountains. So there are some barriers to their migration. Um, and elsewhere, like in Europe or in, in Central Africa or Southern Africa, it's, it's just not their habitat. It's too wet, it's too humid, and, and they would pick up um, diseases and, and, and die off. 
So I've been covering, you know, the UN and humanitarian issues for many, many years. And, you know, every once in a while, I will, across my transom, see a note from like the World Food Program or the FAO about, you know, a desert locust plague, and it'll pique my curiosity. But, you know, over the last couple of months, I've been seeing increasingly alarming uh, notes from the FAO and the World Food Program, and even, you know, OCHA, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs at the UN, about this sort of you know, historic desert locust, I don't know what the word is, surge or swarm or infestation. Uh, but right now, the numbers are are sort of epic and, and historic. Why is that? Why are we seeing this surge right now? Well, first of all, of course, these surges, you know, they don't happen overnight. It's not like an earthquake or a cyclone or something that that's really quick to happen. These things um, evolve, they develop over time. And it takes a long time for, for um, so-called desert locust plagues to kind of build up. Um, normally, uh, when these locusts are solitaries and they're individuals in the desert, they're not causing any harm. It's what we call a recession period, a calm period. Um, but then uh, they will take advantage, as I mentioned, of, of really good, uh, exceptional, unusual rainfall in the desert. Um, and it, it greens the desert. It might be in a very small area. And, and so then uh, th- they will increase in numbers in what we call an outbreak. Um, and, and this can be just in a small corner of a country. Um, now, if these outbreaks aren't detected and if they're not controlled, um, then they, they, they can increase, they can cover um, um, more of that country, they can spread to other countries um, in a region, and it becomes what we call an upsurge. Um, and the, uh, an upsurge is like one step before a plague. So at the moment, the situation that we're facing now is an upsurge. Um, and the last time uh, we had an upsurge was really 2003 to 2005. And and, and that was in West and Northwest Africa, mainly the northern part of Africa. And so it, it could be also considered like a, a, um, a, a regional a plague. Um, now, the reasons why, the, why these things happen, it, it's all linked to, to rainfall. So in the case of the current situation, it started um, a year and a half ago. It started in 2018. Um, there was um, two cyclones that formed in the Indian Ocean. Um, one um, in May at the beginning of the summer and one in October at the end of the summer. And this is normally when these guys form. And, and they brought heavy rains um, to the Arabian Peninsula, uh, a place called the Empty Quarter. Um, and, and this is where the borders of Oman and Yemen and, and Saudi Arabia um, meet. It's in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia. And it's empty. It's just an empty part of the world. There's nothing there but towering sand dunes. There's no roads, there's no infrastructure, there's no villages, there's no people. There's just nothing there. And it's very, very remote. You can't get into these areas because of those, those sand dunes. So anyway, these, these cyclones, they brought um, the really heavy rains in May to the empty quarter. And the second cyclone in October um, brought um, rains as well to the same area. And this is extraordinarily unusual. I mean, it's unusual, first of all, to have two cyclones in, in a year. Um, but then to have them bring rains in exactly the same place is really, really uh, phenomenal. So um, what happened, of course, is the winds that are associated with the cyclone, they, they gathered up all of the locusts that were the single uh, solitaries locusts that were in the region, probably that were in, in northeastern Africa or in the Arabian Peninsula, Southwest Asia, and, and they brought them into these areas. And they concentrated in those areas. And, and of course, they, they reproduced. Now, a locust lives about three months, uh, and with each new generation, a locust increased 20 times. So, so this um, 
can increase. Like one locust mama could have like 20 locust babies. That's right. That, that are live, that, that live to adulthood. Um, a, a, a locust female lays about 300 eggs, but, but you know, about 90% or more of those die, mm, of okay. course. Huh? So uh, what happens is after 20 months, I mean, after three months, you've got 20 times the number of locusts. After six months, you've got 400 times the number of locusts. And after nine months, you have 8,000 times the number of locusts that you started with. So it's this type of, you know, kind of um, increase that occurs when there's really good conditions. So those cyclones allowed, in fact, three generations of breeding to occur in the empty quarter. That was completely undetected and, of course, not, not treated. So essentially, those, those locusts increase 8,000-fold. And then when it's time, uh, you know, uh, for those conditions to dry out, there's no more vegetation, the locusts at that point... Um, uh, migrate as swarms um, to to other countries. So, is there um, like an inference then that you can make about the impact of climate change on um, the exponential growth of of this current uh, current you know uh, infestation? Well, if you look at let's just take a look at cyclones because you know okay we know climate change um, this you know some of the scenarios we know it's it's going to get warmer and all of that sort of stuff but as well it's we're supposed to have more severe weather events and. And a cyclone is an example of a severe weather event. It's also an example um, of how um, historically um, desert locust plagues have um, arisen. So it's caused by cyclones. Now, we've seen, um, just take uh, in the last 10 years, for example, in, in the western part of the Indian Ocean, there has been an increase in the frequency of cyclones. There's been more so- cyclones every year. Um, and so those two cyclones, obviously, in 2018... Um, were very important to the current situation. If we look at the number of cyclones last year, for example, 2019, there was eight, eight cyclones. That's crazy. Normally, there's one or none per year, and there's eight. Um, and there's even a cyclone um, in December. And if you remember, I said cyclones usually start at the beginning of the summer and the end of the summer. Well, December is way after the end of the summer. And that cyclone in December brought heavy rains to the Horn of Africa. And that happened to be exactly where um, swarms that had originated in the empty quarter, and then they had stopped over in Yemen for a, a breeding, uh, a generation of breeding last spring. That's where they happened to be at the end of last year. So you, you can see that this, the swarms are very much integrated with, with nature and the weather and, and with these cyclones. So, so I think that the, the, the thought is, that the, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, if, if there's an increase of cyclones, um, Obviously, it seems that there is a very high potential for an increase of, of locust outbreaks and upsurges like what we see um, uh, this year. And, and so you had these you know, perfect weather patterns that seem to create ideal conditions for the migration and breeding of these desert locusts. When did this particular uh, emergency or the potential for a profound desert locust emergency happening you know now first come across your radar as the person who monitors these things for the FAO well as soon as those cyclones um, occurred so in May 2018 of course I watched them very carefully knowing the importance of them and unfortunately we went through the rest of the year of 2018 with no confirmation of any locusts there but i had a feeling i mean it maybe comes after three decades of doing this job i had a feeling that locusts were there and they were up to some no good um and, and we we tried to contact um 
the the uh, uh, national locus authorities in Saudi Arabia and Oman to to try to get into those areas and have a look, but they, they just couldn't. It was just too too far remote and impossible to do that. Um, so when the swarms started to come out um, in January 2019, and and there are waves of them that continued for three months, and some of them went north into Iran, and and others went south into Yemen. I thought, okay, the situation is is um, going to become worrisome, um, mainly in Yemen, because we know because of the civil conflict, it's not possible to do any surveyor control operations there that were very much needed. Um, but the, the swarms also were getting into other countries that had very have very well established national locust programs that deal with locusts every year. They have well trained staff. They they're equipped. They got vehicles. They have pesticides. So I wasn't overly worried, and in fact. You know, the control operations during uh, 2019 uh, was conducted in in more than half a dozen countries, and they treated nearly 2 million hectares. So, you know, the situation was under control. I mean, there was more locusts than normal, but it was not out of control. Then that cyclone in December that I mentioned that came into the Horn of Africa, Cyclone Pawin, on the 6th of December, that was was the, 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 um, the tipping. Of, of kind of changing a, a situation that was um, uh, under control because at that time of the year in the Horn of Africa, conditions dry out. So any of the locusts that were in eastern Ethiopia and that were in Somalia, they would have kind of died out naturally. And so that cyclone brought everything back to life and it basically allowed the, those locusts to, to breed two more generations. In a, an area of Africa, of course, that's very, very vulnerable to any type of disturbances to the already kind of fragile um, food security and livelihood situation. So to that end, um, you know, you, you had this um, kind of perfect condition in late December. That cyclone caused lots of, of breeding of the desert locusts. What has been the impact uh, of these swarms, of this sort of surge uh, in the various countries in which there are these these sort of swarms still present and breeding, well, you know, it always comes to timing, and and fortunately, those those swarms at the end of of uh, last year in December in, in uh, Somalia and in Ethiopia, they they formed um, mostly after um, the harvest of of the seasonal crop had been completed. Now, of course, those farmers that planted late and harvested late. Um, they were hit very, very hard. But in general, um, the, the harvest itself um, w- was um, not too much damaged. Now, you, ha- you have to think beyond um, uh, farmers, though, because in, in the Horn of Africa, there's a, a very large number of, of pastoralists that rely on, on pastures, green pastures to feed their, their camels and their goats and, and their other smaller animals. Um, and of course, these animals are important um, for their livelihoods, but also for their food source. Um, for, for meat and for uh, the milk source for children. So if the pastures are damaged, this, this can have you know very substantial um, implications on 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 families basically. Fortunately, um, uh, you know the, the crops are not hit hard, but the the pastures were. Um, that was very unfortunate. Now um, we're in a situation, of course, with the next generation of swarms are just starting to form as we speak. Um, in in Ethiopia, in southern Somalia, and in Kenya, throughout northern and central Kenya. And unfortunately, coming back to the timing, um, this coincides with the beginning of the seasonal rains in, in, in the Horn of Africa and the main planting um, season. 
So you can imagine if you're a farmer there um, and you're surrounded by by hungry, um, immature, uh, very voracious, very mobile swarms, uh, you might not plant or you might delay your planting. And in either case, that will have serious repercussions on, on, your, on your harvest. Can, can you just maybe help me visualize this? Like how big is a typical swarm and how much do they eat? Okay, swarms can range tremendously in size. They can be uh, around a, a square kilometer, which is about 100 hectares. They can be tens of square kilometers. They can be hundreds of square kilometers. And there is one swarm that was, um, one single swarm that was reported and accurately measured in northern Kenya in early January uh, that was 40 kilometers long by 60 kilometers wide. So that's one wow. single swarm. Now, a, a square kilometer of a swarm uh, will, can, will contain something between 40 to 80 million locusts. Okay? Now we're going to do some high-level maths here, okay? So each, each locust will consume um, its own body weight of, of food in a day, which is about two and a half grams. So you start to multiply it out, and you get into huge numbers. But essentially, that's equivalent to one square kilometer swarm will eat the same amount of food in one day as 35,000 people. Uh, so, and now, obviously, yeah. Or sorry, no, keep, keep going with your maths. So, so I'm not going to get away from the maths because that is really hard to understand any of that. But let me try to put it in a different perspective. Um, a swarm the size of Rome, because that's where I'm living, and Rome's not a very big town, um, will eat the same amount of food in one day as everybody in Kenya, right? Um, a, a swarm, and, and, and similarly, um, a swarm the, the size of, of, um, of New York um, City, Manhattan, will eat the same amount of food in one day as everybody in uh, New York and California. So, I mean, what you're sort of saying is, is you know, this is a huge food security issue. Um, you know, this is already a extremely, you know, vulnerable part of the world in terms of, of food security, susceptible to drought and in parts of Somalia conflict. Um, and, and here you are adding an extra stressor on top of an already vulnerable situation. I mean, are, are you seeing um, already the, the sort of food security and hunger impacts in this area without getting into sort of too much detail um, just to let people know, you know, that the food FAO and the world food program have like levels of food security from was like one to five, five being, you know, famine. Um, are, are we sort of, where are we on that scale in some of these areas? Uh, uh, most of those areas on the, are on the scale of number four. So they're, they're, they're what we call a, acute insecure, um, uh, food insecurity, so they're one step down below um, famine, um, and, and you have to also realize that you know more than seventy-five percent of the people in Ethiopia, as well as as in Kenya, rely on agriculture um, for for their for their livelihood. So um, th there is really this year an unprecedented threat to to food security and livelihoods in in the Horn of Africa. Now we haven't seen that yet, but it's coming up because remember we're at the beginning of the planting season. We were at the beginning of the growing season. So um, as the farmers are planting, you have the current generation of, of new swarms that are forming. And if they, they stay in Kenya and southern Ethiopia, which they should for another generation of breeding, then that generation of swarms will start to form about the time when the farmers will be harvesting their crops um, in, later in June or, or sometime in mid part of, of the summer. 
So, so the we're looking at a situation. Yeah. So the, the timing, timing here is really terrible. bad. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it could push, it seems, you know, the, the food security situation to that, you know, near famine scale. I mean, it's already already near famine, but, you know, is famine a potential outcome here? If mitigation, and we'll talk about mitigation strategies in a minute, if mitigation is not sort of, you know, taken up? I mean, I think it's difficult to say because, of course, there's a number of, of variables um, here in, in the equation. I mean, you you not only have the desert locusts on themselves, um, but of course, you have those control operations. So, so much depends on on the effectiveness of the control operations of finding, you know, a sufficiently large proportion of the populations to treat. Of course, we're not trying to kill every last locust, but we're trying to reduce the pressure on on food security and, and livelihoods. And it also much depends on, you know, how the seasonal rains will pan out for the next um, three or four months. So what are control measures? What are mitigation strategies? Well, normally, um, you know, I, I guess uh, and a good analogy is, is, is kind of like um, a forest fires and wildfires. It's kind of the same with desert locusts. So, you know, when this problem is really small, as I mentioned, you have an outbreak, that's kind of like a campfire, right? And and if you find the campfire, you just kind of put it out with your car extinguisher, don't you? And in desert locust outbreaks, you can really kind of put them under control by handheld spraying equipment or backpack spraying equipment. But, it, you know, if you if you fail in that and, and the weather cooperates with the locust or the forest fire in, in, in our example, um, then, you know, the campfire spreads into a bushfire and then the bushfire turns into a forest fire, um, which would be like kind of an upsurge that we have now. And if all that fails, it turns into these wildfires that, you know, Australia had um, this past year. And, and a desert locust plague would be the, the locust equivalent of all that. So, you know, when, when you know, the, 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 you have these forest fires or wildfires, of course, you're not trying to put it out with your, your car fire extinguisher or your garden hose. I mean, you're, you know, bringing an aircraft, aren't you? And you're dumping on uh, a, fire, a fire retardant there to, to bring that under control. It's the same with desert locusts. So when you reach this magnitude, this scale of infestations and problem, of course, the only effective means of, of trying to reduce the locusts and control them is by air. It's aerial spraying of, of chemical pesticides or biological pesticides directly onto, onto the locusts um, themselves, whether it's a swarm of locusts or, or it's the, the hopper bands on the ground. I, and presumably that costs money and time and, and resources. Um, do you have the funding you need to conduct the adequate mitigation and control efforts to uh, prevent sort of the worst case scenario or even like a medium range bad case scenario from unfolding right now? Um, fortunately, uh, you know, um, the countries initially, you know, they, they of course, spent um, all of their resources and put all their resources um, in, into the fight against the locusts. But, you know, the locusts very quickly overwhelmed that. And so in January, FAO appealed to the international um, donor community, to our partners, um, for about $76 million at that time. Uh, one month later, um, it was $138 million, and, and just recently it's been revised to $153 million. So you see and, and the reason time, it's going up like that is because of the reproduction cycle of the locusts? Exactly. Of course, the problem is just getting bigger. And so if the problem is bigger, it's going to be more expensive and more, more complicated to bring it under control. Now, we've had um, you know a good response um, from the international community. Um, uh, we had the initial response of course, is a bit slow, but this is very normal. But now it's picked up, even despite, you know, other other competing emergencies um, around. Um, 
the, we still have a gap. We do have a funding gap. Uh, I think we have uh, so far uh, obtained about $103 million out of the 153. So there, there's still a little bit of a ways to go. There's money in the pipeline. So we are getting close. Um, so this is very good news in this kind of gloom and doom tale, um, that at least the, the funding is, is, um, is coming and is now turning that funding into action, of course, which is paramount. Um, this means increasing, upscaling those aerial control operations, bringing in more aircraft, bringing in more pilots, more ground logisticians. Of course, the, the, the pesticides or the biopesticides to feed the aircraft, um, the necessary ground teams, you know, the sprayers as well um, that is supplemented by, by vehicle spraying. Um, all of the, these things, um, you know, they have to be in, in place and and it's kind of well orchestrated, you know, it's kind of like a, a well choreographed dance. You know, if, if you miss one step, you, you know, you look like kind of a fool on the dance floor. Um, it's the same with Desert Locust um, control operations. And, you know, it's really challenging, um, Mark, in, in the sense that um, these places are huge. They're very, um, very broad. There's huge planes, kind of endless planes. In some cases, they're insecure. In other places, they're they're just remote or inaccessible. But you know, locusts are in there and they're breeding and they're increasing. And at the same time, of course, you know, we're in between the rainy seasons. In, for example, in Kenya, so it's supposed to be the dry season for this year. Somehow, this year the dry season was pretty wet, so that was completely favorable for continued locust um, survival and reproduction. So finally, in the next sort of days or weeks or months, what sort of indicators will you be looking towards that would suggest to you um, whether or not the situation can be brought under control? Is it is it really sort of a matter of, of weather patterns? I'll be watching, of course, very, very carefully um, how, how the, um, the seasonal rains that are just starting, how they're going to perform um, in the next couple of months, as well as watching for, for the, the wind patterns to see if there's any anomalies in, in those patterns. Um, because obviously, um, the wind is very important since uh, locusts migrate with the wind. They, they don't fly against the wind like birds or anything. So um, keeping those um, under, under uh, monitoring, um, then you know, we can provide the, the early warning to other countries that could get invaded. Because of course, Early warning and, and early reaction, it's key to any type of a, of a locust fight. Um, now, uh, those places that already have locusts, like Ethiopia, Kenya, and, and Somalia, I'll be watching very carefully the, the conditions on the ground. You know, are they starting to dry out? Because if they are, then locust response is often meant to migrate. Are they still being um, favorable for, for keeping the locusts in place and then that allowing them to mature and have yet another generation of breeding? Um, the current indicators are that the majority of the populations will stay in place and 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 um, in, uh, mature and, and have another generation of breeding. But there's you know always kind of the you know the rambunctious uh, locust swarm that'll you know want to get up and, and and go invade another country. So we have to watch that as well very carefully. Uh, well, Keith, thank you so much for your time. This is absolutely fascinating and obviously you know a very urgent humanitarian issue. But just I found it really interesting. So thank you. No, great, my pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Keith. I found that, frankly, endlessly fascinating. It's just interesting to see um, the connection, I think, between, you know, biology of a bug 
to climate change, to its impact on the real life experience of people and frankly also to international relations as the world try to scrambles amidst this COVID-19 pandemic to also confront uh, this crisis in East Africa. Fascinating conversation. Thank you to Keith. And as I said at the outset, please do feel free to reach out to me uh, if there's anything on your mind. I know this can be an isolating and lonely time. I just want to chat. Feel free to reach out to me. I, I do love hearing from you guys, so feel free to email me. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.